Following the shutdown, my adrenaline was just like pumping because now I'm like, we had so much press, which was so good that we were so like high profile in the startup scene that when we did shut down, it was a lot. And it's like, shit, like how the hell could we not have made this thing work? It was not a fun experience to go through at all. It was hard. I pushed it down. If I don't get this next company up and running and get some seed capital in, I'm going to have to go work for some like big company that I'm going to hate my life. And like, I don't want to do that. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Kevin Gibbon describing how admits a loss of nearly $63 million, his entrepreneurial spirit prevailed. Today, we'll be exploring Kevin's journey to Airhouse, an e-commerce company that we'll chat a bit more about later on. Kevin had been tech curious from the get-go, from cutting electronics as a kid to building a small but viable website business as a teen. He ultimately founded Ship, a startup which, after taking a huge financial blow, wouldn't survive. It was a misfortune that would eventually till the soil in which Airhouse would grow. Rather than allowing this loss to become a dead end, it became Kevin's launchpad. Now, Airhouse has allowed Kevin to successfully deliver a company with lasting impact on both people and the direct-to-consumer market. So let's see how his story unfolds and trek across Lionsgate Bridge to Vancouver, Canada. We grew up in a relatively mid-sized suburb town out of uh, Vancouver. I was really into tech and electronics, like from a really, really early age. I think it was just taking apart every single remote control car I had. <laughs> this is, and I, I remember the first computer I think my, my mom bought us uh, was an IBM 286 something and just playing like any games. I think like Doom was one of the more popular ones. <laughs> My dad was a sea worker and my mom was a bank manager. We were probably lower middle class. I was mostly raised by my single uh, mom. She did the best that she possibly could. I do remember like I, I wasn't able to go to like the best schools um, unless I got scholarships like that was not an option. Also in Canada, it's universities. It's really a lot different than the U.S where that's kind of just like, that's what you do. In Canada, it's really not. So I think a lot of my drive does come from just like growing up and like your family, the same thing that your previous generation did and so on. And I just, just don't like that. I, I thought that, that why couldn't you make things better? The data supports what Kevin brings up. In 2016, 28.5% of Canadians between the age of 25 and 64 had a four-year university degree or higher in comparison to 35% of U.S.-born Americans. It's slight, but many Americans grow up with the elusive idea of the American dream breathing down their necks, and that's kind of synonymous with a college education. The idea that everyone has to go to college in order to succeed. American universities today are enrolling thousands 
thousands of young men and women who realize the increasing importance of a college degree in competing for good career positions. Kevin didn't experience that. But having grown up in Vancouver's lower middle class, he knew that when he had a family of his own, he wanted their lives to be different, to be better. So through his game playing, toy car dissections, program tinkering, Kevin's curiosity was priming him to succeed in a tech world that was taking shape. While others his age would have been, well, doing what most 13-year-olds do, Kevin was constructing tiny internet empires. I was really into the internet probably when I was like 12, 13, but then I was just like interested in like, how do I like turn some of this stuff into like a business? So I got into web development and by no means have any design eye at all. These are the days of like the text on a screen. And so I was able to learn HTML and program websites for friends and family that wanted them. Did you ever make a website for yourself? I did, and it was hosted on GeoCities. Uh, I can't even remember what I had on it, honestly. I think it would just be like things that I was interested in. Sports, I was into a lot, so I've played hockey most of my life, as all Canadians do. Fortino, rolling puck down low, shot, scores! It's Poulin again! Canada wins gold in overtime! Hockey, not a terribly surprising theme for a teenage Canadian boy, but it worked. Kevin was wading into cyberspace. He was exploring his own identity while ironically helping people showcase their own. He describes these efforts in step with the early internet as basically text on screen, which is a far cry from the eye-grabbing colorful interfaces of most websites today. But it's hard to miss what you've never known. Regardless, Kevin's websites were a success. It was a simple start, but even something like Lionsgate Bridge began with pen and paper. At this point, Kevin was rapidly gaining knowledge through his website experiment, and the internet was evolving into an innovator's playground. Circuit boards had opened new avenues for exchange, but Kevin didn't start with the small stuff like collector's items or dishware. He got right down to business and started importing cars. So growing that first business And I guess going to your second business, importing cars from the U.S. to Canada. When were you doing that? And that that seems like a whole thing, like going from creating websites like, okay, all this virtual stuff was cool, making stuff for friends and family. Now let's work up to cars. Well, this is like when like Craigslist was really exploding and it's still obviously it's huge, but I'd probably buy in importing cars and selling things on eBay like together. So I'd basically just look for any like price arbitrage that I could possibly get. Do you remember how you actually went about selling it and like what you felt when you actually sold something? I actually hated it. It was really tough. Basically buying something for less in the U.S. and then having to actually import it into Canada takes a lot of time. I didn't like that whole process. It was just terrible, like driving down from Vancouver to Portland or California or something like that. Like pick up a car, drive it back, try to get it inspected, sell it on Craigslist. 
it was just not a fun experience at all. So why did you keep doing it? I didn't actually, but what I did get bigger at where I found that it was much easier to do was to buy things and resell them on eBay. So I would try to buy one and I went through multiple different categories and basically just looking and scouring the internet, buying bulk, get it shipped to you, resell on eBay on single piece items. You need to understand all of your margins. I honestly did not and was just looking at the cash flow and it's like, oh, I look at the price I'm buying this thing and then look at what I'm selling it for. And then it go, oh, that's profit. But you don't actually look into like everything else. You'd buy something in, in bulk and you'd have to throw up 20% of your inventory because it was all crap or something like that. And you don't factor in that. And, and then the hard part was the shipping. So like bringing all of those boxes to like the post office or literally standing in line with like dozens of boxes. It was just like the worst experience ever. So overall, it was actually a really, really terrible business. But I think that I'm glad that I did because I did learn just so much about like business and I had a good time doing it too. It was like the hunt, any possible thing that I can make any sort of arbitrage on. And so just like finding that supply and then on eBay, it's, it's really easy, especially in those days, it was really easy to sell things very, very quickly. We've all been there, crammed into a stuffy line at the post office during the holidays, balancing packages like you're a circus act. That's the image I get of young Kevin, toting dozens of packages to ship for this, well, slightly haphazard arbitrage business. But it did drive home the bubble-popping advice that many seasoned professionals impart on youth. You're not going to love everything you do. Not the most inspiring advice, if you ask me. Oh, and side note, Kevin uses the term arbitrage a lot. And for those of you who don't know the jargon, it basically just means buying something in one market so you can make a profit by reselling it in another. Kevin's eBay experience was teaching him things, even if that meant teaching him what not to do. But this side gig was reaching an endpoint, and Kevin was preparing to step, or perhaps I should say launch, into a different, slightly less volatile kind of work. Canada has, I believe, still only one satellite up there, maybe two. But working on that and then flying to, I think it was like Italy, which was one of the partners that we worked with. And we didn't launch any satellites, so it wasn't as cool as that. But we actually saw the imaging data for agriculture use or government use or, or whatever. The idea of creating something that you could actually see working that had some utility somewhere, like that's just really, really cool. I've, I've always loved creating products and creating something that didn't exist before or helping in that process. So taking that, like, I guess, rewarding feeling of seeing something in action, how did that, like chasing that feeling, maybe lean into, I saw that you started Kevin Gibbon Inc. Yeah. In 2009. Yes. 
Was that your first incorporated company? I think I just have that as like just a general consultancy. I don't think it's, it's not even incorporated. I did like a lot of consultancy work just for like random. I can't even remember what kind of stuff that I worked on, but that, that was just kind of like a catch all as far as like, which I hated, I hated by the way. I hate it. Being a consultant is the worst thing ever. Why? Because you not only have to find clients, you, they also don't care about you at all. It's just, you're, you're basically just a cog in the machine to get this thing done. Just the mundane work of like billing clients and doing all that stuff was not that fun. I did enjoy the coding piece more. But con- like any any consultant knows, like that's just like a tiny like no, it, it isn't the majority of the work. But the the part that most consultants hate is like the chase of getting your next client and doing all of that stuff outside of actually doing the work itself. The bureaucratic, impersonal nature of consulting didn't afford Kevin with the creative wiggle room that he naturally gravitated towards. Consulting mainly involved paper pushing. There were no opportunities for him to look up at the sky and actually see his projects in action, like the satellite he had made for Raytheon, star-like and proud, wading through the night sky. But Kevin was relentless, and his desire to pursue projects and opportunities that aligned with his interests provided the push for his next big project, one that would combine his proficiency in coding with his affinity for deal hunting. In between there, I started my very first company. Now the, the dates probably overlap here. 2010, right? Yeah. And that was a company called Smart Isles. So I started this in Canada. I, I think from working as an engineer, learning a lot on like iOS development and what's possible and just seeing how many people are, are using these devices, the business side of me kicks in. It's like, wow, this could be like a really cool opportunity to get in, like involved in this. I know how to program this stuff. I can do it myself. And so I kind of paired that with my, my arbitrage and I've always been like a deal hunter as well. And so Smart, Smart Isles, what it was, was it was a way to look at all of the best deals that, that were around you. I think we tried to raise some more money in, in Vancouver. Couldn't. Why couldn't you? For one, we didn't have a business model at all. So... We actually had hundreds of thousands of users on the app, but we did not have a monetization plan. And our user growth, while it was impressive, um, it wasn't like skyrocketing to be like, oh, this is going to be the next thing. People didn't really see something very small that has like a, like a, a core idea and you have early traction of what it actually could potentially be. It was very much what's your revenue, what's your gross margin, what's your profits, like evaluated on, on the same merits that you'd evaluate a, a traditional business versus just the, and, and this is this is why like venture has like accelerated tech so much is because you can take something that uh, starts off very small and your audience is global. It's different than creating like a, a store, like say a, a small storefront. You can have the best bakery or whatever, but you can't scale that. Like in technology, you could scale it infinitely. 
And so you just need to see those early signs working. And I think that the company, to be clear, Smart Alice should not exist. It was not a good business. It did not have a good business model. What did it feel like to, to shut it down? Because you had users, went to San Francisco to like try to pursue this. And although maybe it seems super logical that it shouldn't have existed now, I imagine that it was harder to maybe see that while you're in the midst of it. So like, how did it feel? Shitty. It was really tough. It, it was one of those things that at that point, I think that when you're super early in your career, and this is what happened to me as well, you uh, think things are just going to work out and you're just kind of blind to a lot of like the potential problems that could happen and to be shut down. We took friends and family money, like burn that, like that was hard. That's super hard too. like, don't, don't ever do that, especially to people that aren't familiar with a seed investment. Like if you don't have money to risk, don't invest it. <laughs> I'd say it was devastating, but my personality, I always am on to the next thing. So it's like, oh, this didn't work, but I learned a, a ton and now I have all these other connections and I wanted to do something next. Kevin, forced by investors' thirst for profit to shut down Smart Isles, was obviously disappointed. But he learned a lot about what it takes to get a company off the ground. And this episode would be the first stone he dropped in his sling. Traction and structure are essential. But the most important thing is capitalizing on signs of early growth, especially in tech. Kevin also learned that it's crucial for a founder to understand his potential investors' values. Because often, a divide manifests between the founder's priorities and those of the investors. And this can really burn a budding entrepreneur. Venture capitalists just want growth at all costs, which may be at the detriment of building a long-term lasting company. Kevin's first experience with them was the hazing he needed to graduate the minor leagues. After all, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And Kevin came out of this experience a hardened man, taking the lessons he learned to the major leagues. I was living with my girlfriend luckily now wife in Vancouver and I was like I'm moving down to San Francisco I'm gonna take this job opportunity and I don't know why she said like yes to it it's, it seems so insane at the time but also we were young and she knew how passionate I was to start my own thing I have some like decent skills on like developing iOS apps and here's a company that has a little bit of funding. They could pay me some money and I, I actually stayed in their house as well. They couldn't get additional funding. That turned into, okay, now I need to actually find a job here now. And then I, I went back to um, the person that I, I did have a relationship from my initial trip down there, Jesse that was running attachments.me and he was looking for an iOS developer. Luckily enough, we made that work, and I stayed there for, I believe, a year. I feel like your experience in this whole startup, Silicon Valley, raising capital world is not one where the road seems like super stable and like you're seeing kind of failure at two different points now. How are you like, yes, but I have an idea. <laughs> I'm an internal optimist. I always think that things will work out, even to this day. 
And I think that's a really great trait of any entrepreneur, but also can get you into a lot of trouble as well. And so I just thought that it would work out through every single step. It would be like one failure, but like, here's a few other things. Here here are some other ideas or here's some other opportunities and like this, this could work and just continuing on with that. And I think that is what has gotten me to like where I am today is just like that drive and just that, just this internal optimism that I have that, that if you continue to work really hard, you continue to learn a lot, and especially from your failures, that's where you learn the most from is you're from your failures. I've always believed in myself that I could just make it work. And so that's really what's kept me going through through all the failures that I've had. In San Francisco, right before having this idea for ship, can you just take me through what like one of your days looked like up to the moment of maybe coming up to that idea? It was working for this company startup called Attachments.me. I think I was sharing an apartment with four or five other people. Uh, it'd be getting into the office uh, early. Um, it was a small team. It was like six of us. Um, and we all were extremely friendly with each other and also friends outside of work as well. It was a really fun experience that I had there. And then my co-founder of Ship, Josh, he was actually at Attachments.me. And I was like, what happens if you like, you take like the industry that I know like a little bit about, hated working for it, and you just like reimagined what it actually could be. And so myself and my then friend, Josh, we were both working at Attachments.me and we were just started to kind of think about and brainstorm this on the side. Then we were like, okay, let's let's go and, and do this. And then Jesse, he actually fired both of us. Really? <laughs> Why? He's like, you guys can't, like, you can't work on this thing. Like, you need to be dedicated. I do remember that he's he, he taking us to, like, this cafe. He's like, guys, this is not going to work. I've talked to the team. Like, they, they don't want you on the team anymore. Like, it's clear that you guys are working on something else. And we're like, oh, shit, okay. It's like, all right, we got to do this thing. Being fired for your job, for being too distracted, would seem like a huge setback to the average adult. But Kevin was no average employee. Instead of viewing it as a setback, he saw his firing as the call to action, as the jolt of electricity he needed to jumpstart his long dormant dream. Kevin describes himself as the eternal optimist, and it felt like his optimism was finally paying off. At long last, his slingshot was ready for launch. What I've heard so far from you was I'm trying to solve the issue that I was getting when I was selling stuff on eBay, like packaging was a nightmare. Let me solve this problem. So what was the solution to that? And what did you try to build? So really, it, w- it was riding off, honestly, the tales of like Uber. So when we first built our first website, it was like we had some ads. It was like we were supposed to be the Uber for shipping. The shipping industry has remained unchanged for nearly 40 years. It's been dubbed now. the Uber of shipping. Tell me more about shipping. 
press a button, somebody comes to your house, picks up whatever you want to ship, and ships it anywhere you want. We did everything ourselves initially. At that time, neither of us had cars in the city. We would actually rent zip cars. I created all, all of the engineering stuff. Josh did all the branding design. It was a very small amount of volume that we got, but like low hundreds of people that, that we actually would do this for. And we just started to work on this thing, and then we would actually go and like pick up the items for people, take them back to our place and package them up, and then go literally walk them down to like USPS and drop them off. Before even that, like, how do you even know you had traction? We had people that were coming off of ads and using the product. So how many people, like like a couple, you said a couple hundred? Not even that, maybe like a hundred or something like that. And so that was like enough to be like, okay, like we can't do all these packages ourselves anymore. That's big enough to maybe get someone else's help. Well, and also just talking to other people. Like at that, at that time, we did have like a very a small network of people, and was, was like, "This is the Uber shipping," and everybody's like, "This is brilliant! Like, this is going to be such a huge business. Like, this is just going to be like as big or bigger than even Uber." We're like, "Yeah, it is." These are like smart people, and and also even like early angel investors and stuff like that. That's when we're like, okay, this is actually something that that can work. And then the next stage was to raise a little bit of angel money. I think our first check was like 50 grand. And then we're like, oh shit, like now we actually have some money. I owe this and probably most of my success to Naval from AngelList. Naval was at TechCrunch Disrupt and I was watching him online. And Naval is the founder of AngelList. So what AngelList is, for anybody who doesn't know, basically you as a small company or midsize or whatever, initially you would post that you were raising money and there was a lot of seed investors, angel investors on there. And there's a platform to basically connect the two. So you, you could raise money showing off your product and sharing it and all those types of things. You were watching TechCrunch Disrupt, right? Yep. They were talking about some company that was in the shipping space and Naval is like, you know what you should do? Be like the Uber for shipping. And like, you should go and pick up packages and like do all of like the hard work for everybody. And then I just cold emailed him and I was like, this is what we were doing. Here's our website. And he's like, wow, this is really interesting. Then that later led to us being featured on AngelList which was a really big deal back then. So it got distributed through just email to so many investors. Were you nervous meeting up with them? No. I've never really been been that nervous meeting just like high profile people. I don't know. It's it, it's just part of my personality, I guess. So I think we, we closed the first few hundred K from just like small angels. And then I think that it went so well that Naval's like, hey. Wait, few hundred K? That's money. <laughs> That's money to like do what you need to do. So what are you feeling like after after that raise? Awesome. I think I called my wife. I was like, we can pay for rent again. <laughs> Naval, I think, was so impressed. He loved the idea. He liked me, obviously. What is it about you that was like, oh, like this is someone worth backing? I mean, like, yeah, yeah, sure, your idea is good. But he also, to open those doors, he has to see something in you. Passion, 
passionate about this idea and getting it off the ground. But obviously he liked you enough to make an introduction. Can you talk about that next introduction? Yeah, the next introduction was Tim Ferriss. met at a bookstore, took a walk around the park, myself, uh, my co-founder, Josh, and him. We just kind of talked about the idea. And I think for Tim, he was much more worried about like the downside, trying to like really mitigate risks. Because I think like as an early like angel investor, you're really thinking about like all of the the possible problems that, that could really arise. Where Naval was much more like, hey, look, I understand how this venture business works. If you're doing seed deals, you invest like 50 deals, you get one that's an Uber and you like just knock it out of the park. Or as a seasoned angel investor, you're like you're optimizing for like the upside versus like looking at the downside. So Tim was like very like I remember following the conversation. It was like email after email, like, what about this? What about this? And I was able to to convince him that like this was like a worthwhile investment. And then we did this Angelist Syndicate and we got like massive press around this. So he would put in a percentage of the the entire amount. It turned out to be like 700K. That was the, the syndicate size. It like filled up, I think it was within like hours or something like that. Why did it fill up so quickly? I think it was a combination of the press that we did get and Tim Ferriss being behind it. And also, didn't he do? He did a blog post too, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We raised uh, $1.3 $1. million total. I think the biggest thing for us actually was press. It really jump started us because everybody's like, oh my, Uber for shipping, of course, this makes so much sense. I have uh, I have all these things that I want like, to ship. And then it just kind of built on from there. And then we did hire a bigger team and did traditional marketing and all that stuff. And then we raised our next round. It was a $10 million round. We had such an unbelievable fit with consumers. The term we would always hear is like, it was magical. Think of the worst experience you had. So like the post office is definitely up there, like the DMV, and then like turning into something that's actually pleasant. Like we got to a place where it was like, you take a picture of whatever you want to send. You could send a bike or you could send like anything and then enter in where you wanted it to go anywhere around the world. And we would show up and early on it'd be on demand. So like we'd show up in 20 minutes. Like that's unbelievable. If you think of like what the the status quo was, like you would have to try to print labels out and you have to box that. Like we would also do things like you could do, you could send anything anywhere in the world. People love the service so, so much that that got um, venture capitalists like so excited at the possibility. And that's one of the reasons we're able to raise so much money. Kevin's unwavering confidence in himself had always been the fuel for his engine, and that wasn't going to change anytime soon. He wasn't at all intimidated or nervous during his introduction to elite members of the business world because he had already proven that his idea mattered to the most important person, himself. He knew he was not going to quit fighting for his brainchild no matter what the outcomes of the pitches were. And that's what the investors noticed. They saw the dog in him. All the rejections, the frustration, the lessons had culminated in a phenomenon that was rising more rapidly than he had ever expected. 
The world was watching. All eyes were on him. This was it. But Kevin would soon learn the hard way that the faster you rise, the harder you fall. The numbers started to flatten off and they weren't growing at the same rate that they were before. The pressure from the board, that was like, oh shit, something is not really working here. Because I'm, as I said, an eternal optimist. I always think that they figure things out. I would always try to paint a, a better picture. Like I convinced myself of this. The problem with that thinking was that our core product did not apply to SMBs or enterprise. People did not want us to actually pick up from them every single day. The enterprise side, it's like they want custom everything. They want custom integrations into their crazy systems and everything. As we realized that like the core piece wasn't actually working, like we weren't profitable in any market. And we're like, okay, we got to go back. I should have been thinking about that. I just didn't. I was just focused on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. We realize this is not working. We don't have that much cash in the bank. We're not going to be able to go raise more money based on the models in our four markets at that time. We need to try to retool everything and focus on profitability. So we, we did do that. Previous, it was like, hey, let's get more high volume people on here. As soon as we get to these volume thresholds, we become profitable, which is what the model was. But then it's like, oh shit, we have this SMB product out in the market. We also had like a self-serve label printing product that now looking back, that was the stupidest thing that we did because we were just trying to like copy competitors. But we had so many competitors in that space that we couldn't make really any money off that. And then it was, okay, we need to focus on, on profitability and we made great progress on it. We were trying to raise more money. We couldn't. And then ultimately it came down to looking at the cash in the, in the bank and like, I think we had like 5 million bucks left or something like that. And we were running a million bucks a month or something like that. We had to basically present to the board that we had a plan to become profitable. Luckily, we were able to do that, but that also meant laying off 85% of the people in the company and just focusing on San Francisco. Huge wake up call, like my ego got dropped to like nothing. And I had to basically prove to them that I could take this thing from basically a failure to something that could work. And so working really hard with them and, and also respecting them a lot more. I don't know. I just kind of thought that I was smarter than most of the board because they weren't in the day to day and everything. And I didn't really respect a lot of the opinions that they did have. Looking back, that was a mistake. That was a big turning point. I've actually carried that so much more into what I'm doing now. So refocusing on that one market in San Francisco, like how did that go?
It actually went fantastic. <laughs> in my mind, it was successful. We did absolutely everything that we said we were going to do. We, we became profitable in San Francisco. We crossed over every single milestone that we were trying to do. And also, we were getting larger and larger customers. And like it was working. Like It really, really, truly was. And we turned around the ship that wasn't. But the problem was we need more capital to continue. We weren't profitable as a company yet. We were operationally profitable. And you have so many layoffs. Most investors don't want to touch you. They just don't. And so that ultimately led to us having to close down the company. But in my eyes, we were successful to the plan that we executed on. Investors were turning down Kevin based on the failures of his past. Yet in the face of Kevin's rejection, he remained sure of the valuable progress his company had made. While Kevin never distracted himself with the judgments of those around him, nearly 70% of all people struggle with imposter syndrome, terrified that our performance won't meet people's expectations. Imposter syndrome makes many of us quit while we're ahead or haven't even started. Kevin had $63 million of expectation hanging over him. You would think that if he ever considered giving up, it would have been standing in front of Silicon Valley's top investors with a flattening growth rate. Just as we had seen with Smart Isles, there was a discrepancy between his investors' aspirations and what his business could provide. If you grow your investment loans too rapidly, you will have the pressure to build something as grand as your investor's vision. You have one option, go big or go home. But with Kevin's undying belief in himself, he saw no need to go home. Quitting out of fear of failure is never the answer. But Kevin did eventually learn that getting ahead of yourself can have its setbacks as well. So kind of following the shutdown, my adrenaline was just like pumping because now I see this thing working. And and to be specific, we saw that the thing that was working was going after these direct-to-consumer digital first brands. And I was like, this thing is really working and they have a huge pain point. And also it's not like a consumer business. And these things are scaling like crazy. Like we saw their volume was just going through the roof. The second I was not involved in that company anymore, myself and my co-founder, Sarah, literally not even a day break. We just started. I needed an income at that time for my family's sake. If I don't get this next company up and running and get some seed capital in, I'm going to have to go work for some like big company that I'm going to hate my life. I've been there. I don't want to do that. We had a small infant as well as support. And so I'm like, I can't stop. I need to provide financially. And also this thing I just have to, to go after the company, which we're now working at Airhouse. It is a completely different company, but it kind of is like a continuation of ship in a number of different ways, but aimed at a different customer segment. For me, I do things to learn and get better. Like I look at the input that I put in, not the output. So continue to try to get better myself. And then combination of getting better and luck, hopefully you'll be successful in other people's eyes. What myself and Sarah really did learn is that, yeah, there is this huge underserved market and also growing market too. I went deep into like looking at Shopify. So anybody doesn't know Shopify, they basically power these digital brands, websites, like looking at their growth. They're like one of the only companies out there that are really capitalizing on this huge movement of independent sellers going directly to their customers. 
Now you have Amazon and you had eBay and all of these things, but you're now able to speak directly to your customer. Also manufacturing, you can completely outsource your manufacturing, typically overseas and where before you'd have to make your stuff yourself or have a factory or something like that. But what we saw that really hadn't changed is like, how do you get your stuff to your customer after you sold it? And there is like a really big market out there. It's called 3PL Market, third-party logistics, their warehouses. But it's really it's an old school industry. And you have a lot of these modern brands that are like, hey, I made this cool product and I'm like a really innovative marketer. I don't know anything about logistics. And we just saw such a huge gap in the market. It's like, where is the Shopify of this, of logistics or, or operations? And that kind of led us into what we're building now at, at Airhouse. We actually have learned over the last, now it's been like two and a half plus years since we started Airhouse, that people actually want the flexibility and the customization to power all of those different sales channels where we initially did think that it was just Shopify, but it's not. My goal is to build something that really matters to people. With Airhouse, Kevin had found an underserved market and had created a new innovative way to support the e-commerce business. Whether in the market or in his own entrepreneurship, Kevin could spot gaps in potential from a mile away. All of his energy went into building something better to fill those gaps. After burning through $63 million, I keep saying that number and each time I say it, I feel like it sounds crazier. But after burning through all that many and enduring the public failure of ship, Kevin was faced with the disappointment of the fans and the investors who had believed and bought in to his vision. It would take time for Kevin to process the loss, but with a family to provide for and an intense determination to create something that mattered, Kevin didn't indulge in regret. His mistakes served as ground control, directing him in the right direction for Airhouse to take flight. So Airhouse is an end-to-end fulfillment service for digital-first brands. After you've sold something, manufactured it, get it into your hands of your customers, we basically do that. We're super easy to use. You sign up online, we'll get you up and running in a day. We're basically able to, to have, a, we have a network of warehouses that we work with and you only work with us and we'll work with all of your different sales channels. So it's kind of like an all-in solution for your logistics piece. And we're just really trying to help these entrepreneurs scale their businesses as quickly as they possibly can. What I think is going to be an even larger thing that people don't realize is that all of these smaller shops that were selling like physically that have been put out of business, unfortunately, which is terrible by the pandemic, they're entrepreneurs as well. And there's going to be so many new people that are going to want to create these brands online. So I think that you're going to see this creation of independent brands because it's so easy and it does not take that much capital to actually get started. And then the customers will speak for themselves and you're going to get away from 
the traditional CPG companies that had all of the R&D and specialization and distribution channels and everything, that has been completely democratized. And now everybody knows that e-commerce is the future. And so I think you're going to see so many new brands get created. And I think that's actually what's going to drive the e-commerce revolution or whatever you want to call it, even more than people at home right now buying during the pandemic. So if you were starting this company, maybe in your 20s, uh, early 20s, and and you were to give yourself some advice on starting something, what advice would you give that, that younger version of yourself? For one, I think that it would be trying not to get caught up in any of the hype. Look at failure as a learning experience and it's not a bad thing and it's it's going to happen look at just the inputs that you put in and don't don't really put a lot of emphasis on the outputs because that's the only thing that you really can control and that's something that I've definitely learned now all you could do is just focus on the next the next things take whatever learnings you have and and focus on the inputs that you're going to put in there It seems to me that Kevin was never driven by success in the conventional sense. He wasn't seeking praise, but instead the joy of bringing something meaningful into the world. He measured his success by the quality of his inputs, not the societal value given by his outputs. With an impeccable work ethic, it makes sense why his self-confidence remained constant, whether he was getting fired from his first job in San Francisco or making a deal with a major tech tycoon. For most entrepreneurs, just hearing the word failure is enough to send a shiver down your spine. The word is seeped into feelings of fear, anxiety, and defeat. But what might have been failure in other people's eyes was nothing but a stepping stone for Kevin to achieve higher heights. If you want to create something that's never been done before, failure is an inevitable risk. In fact, it might be the thing that you need to create that new thing. So unafraid of criticism, Kevin had the courage to try idea after idea after idea with each trial and error excelling him down the path to reaching what would ultimately be his best company yet. And that company is Airhouse. I'm excited to see where this company goes, and I have a lot of confidence in its success because of all the lessons that he had to learn along the way. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn, with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, 
Ankita Nambiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu, with support from Tiffany Dang, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalcaba, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.